Greetings, everybody. I'm Jeremiah. And that's him. She's Vanya. That's me. Welcome to another episode of the Beard and Curls podcast, where we talk about dating, relationships, marriage, mental health, and so much more. So what are we talking about today, love? Today, we're going to be talking about systemic racism. Trust me, you don't want to miss this. We're going to go all the way in. Cue that intro. What's up, guys? It's your girl, Margo Bingham. Karen Parsons. You're now tuned in. You're now tuned in. You're now tuned in. You are now tuned in. You are now tuned in to Beard and Curls. 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 Keep it locked. Our guest today is a professor, coach, advisor, speaker, writer, and researcher. She's passionate about seeing people and places better. She's a firm believer that collective social wellness depends greatly upon a deep understanding of purpose that takes us beyond ourselves. You know her, you love her. Marla, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Awesome, awesome. We're glad to have you. All right, so today we're going to do a deep dive into systemic racism. But before we do that, (laughs) exactly, before we do that, uh, let's just get an understanding of what the word racism means exactly. Now, according to Webster's definition of racism, which is being challenged as we speak, uh, racism is a belief that race is the primary determinant of human traits and capacities and that racial differences produce an inherent superiority of a particular race. Now, it also goes on to talk about uh, prejudice and discrimination. So I guess the question I have for you is, how is systemic racism different from what I just shared right now? So that's a really good question. And I think that given that the times that we're in, we have got to be very clear on uh, definitions. And so the definition that is there that you just read to me, it's not um, and it's it's not inaccurate, but it is insufficient and incomplete. And so if we're going to really understand racism and it's in its totality, we can't just look at what happens on the one-on-one level. And that's actually what that definition that you just read, that's what that definition of racism actually more so focuses on. It's the interpersonal, it's what happens between people, but systemic racism is actually built on that belief, but what's built are institutions, policies, processes, procedure, culture, um, organizations. Um, And so all of these, uh, you know, dynamics and parts of a system work together to uphold that very belief that race is the determining factor for who, you know, who gets power, how people get power, who's entitled to things, who's not entitled to things. And so systemic racism is really about how do I think, again, things like institution, cultures, processes, procedures, policies, how do all of those things work together to reinforce this racial hierarchy, which is ultimately about power? And we see that manifestation of that at the individual level. So racism occurs individually because we exist in a larger system that supports it. Wow, no, that was thorough. I appreciate that. So I guess the question I want to follow that up with is, how do these systems even come into place? How do they come into power? Yeah, that's a that's another great question. Um, it's basically philosophy. You know, we have these philosophical foundations, and so I'm a political. I work in a political science department, and I teach uh, poli sci 101. And one of the first things that um, a poli sci student learns uh, coming into their first day or first week of class is the foundation of governments, the foundation of society is, be, is built on some kind of a philosophy. Um, and a philosophy is really just a logic for how we think the world and the people in it. Should 
should be organized, should be governed, um, you know, should be entitled to power, should not be entitled to power. So if you look at, um, you know, even the system of slavery, right, it was first built upon a philosophy. This philosophy being that um, enslaved people who, you know, were African at the time, who were brought over um, to, to, the, uh, to the Americas and to, and to other areas, that they were inherently inferior. Now, uh, enslaved people were definitely uh, secured because they were able to um, do extremely just rough labor. And so there was an economic gain, but in order for um, colonizers and Europeans to justify the uh, trafficking of Africans to be that labor, um, it had to work and it had to be based on some kind of a, of a philosophy. And so that guiding philosophy, if you look at the roots of it, um, one of the core roots you'll see is even um, a biblical definition or a biblical justification uh, for slavery, which was the, um, the curse of Ham you know, approach or the curse of ham uh, dogma or theology, I would say, whereby um, Africans were seen to be uh, the cursed descendants of ham. And so that was one way in which this institution of slavery was able to survive and to thrive. Um, and so it wasn't just about economic gain, but for that economic gain to actually happen, there had to be some kind of justification outside of, you know, financial gain for it to thrive. Wow, no, that's a lot. Yeah, that's very interesting. I think this is a, such a good explanation. Like I was talking to Jeremiah earlier today and I'm like, it's so hard for me to understand like how people see that these people have the same, you know, the same feature. They have a hat, they have arms, they have legs, they breathe the same. Mm -hmm. And they still manage to believe that they're inferior so that's like a really, really hard concept for me to process just because, yeah, I just don't. Well, you know, it's I think that once we take a deep dive into history and we really understand the foundations upon which our society has been built, not just ours, but other societies as well, you can really see um, a very strong, strong, just philosophical values based approach to understanding and interpreting the value of humans, um, even from a scientific perspective, you know, the scientific institution, political institution. Um, if you look at all of those areas, you will find people who we kind of celebrate as these intellectual and, you know, social giants, if you will, quote unquote. And they had some deep seated racist problems, right? Um, I mean, racism evolved to be, um, you know, uh, even racism even evolved to be justified by science, right? Because scientists, even thought early scientists, thought that black folks were just subhuman. And so, if you if you build your your um, thoughts and beliefs on that, then you know everything that you do, whether it is building an institution you know, starting, um, you know, starting something or whatever it is, then if that's what you think, then it's going to show up in those actions and like how you build and how you organize. And if you're someone in power, then you're going to wield that power in a way that supports that belief. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, now I think there was a book, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you kind of shared that with us offline, uh, mm -hmm. Charles Mills, uh, Racial Contract. Can you speak yeah. to that a little bit? 
Yeah, so the uh, racial contract by Charles Mills, it takes us into a deeper dive um, beyond what is typically known as the social contract. And so that's one of the things that I teach my political science students is that the foundations of government in this country, at least, it's based on this philosophy of the social contract, whereby there's an expectation between you know two parties, citizens and government. So the social contract basically states, look, you know, citizens, if you do X, Y, and Z, this is what you will get in return from us, us meaning government, right? If we're talking about applying the social contract in that kind of a way. But what Mills does is that he really analyzes how that has not been true for non-whites. And so um, one of my favorite quotes from that book is when he says, whiteness is not necessarily about color, but it's really a set of power relations. And so in the contract, you basically have, I mean, this is just a very high level summary, but um, according to Mills, the contract is, you know, two parties, those who are white, those who are non-white. And so um, the, the white part of the party um, they basically exercise power over non-whites. And so in a contract, typically you have uh, two parties who have these equal um, equal contributions and there's equal, um, I would say, receipt or uh, receiving of, you know, reward or goods or things of that nature. But according to Mills, the in the racial contract, non-whites are not really... Um, and don't really have that. They're actually objects of the other party. And so uh, non-whites in this racial contract don't really have a say in terms of, you know, what they're going to do, how they're going to do it. At the end of the day, non-whites are perceived by whites to just have the resources, um, you know, anything that belongs to non-whites are uh, basically open for whites to uh, have. I can probably explain that in a better way, but I'm trying to make it like as simple as possible because it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty good deep dive, but he basically like critiques this common social contract that we all typically tend to um, use to kind of understand how government is supposed to work. But again, the racial contract, it's kind of like that little asterisk um, at the bottom of the social contract, essentially. So let me ask you, I have to ask this though. So how many people are aware of this racial contract? How many people know that it even exists? So I would say if you take a basic, you know, African American studies course, you will, that's kind of like, you know, uh, reading 101. But um, as f- if, let's say that you didn't, you know, have a chance to actually come across this book, um, I think that there's just an understanding, um, you know, in in non-Black communities that that is how it is, because we are hyper aware of how differently we're treated um, and like what these kind of cultural expectations are. Um, Even if whites may not be aware of it, um, we are definitely aware of it. Like we definitely see how we're treated differently. And so even if you don't know the term, the specific term racial contract, you definitely understand and can recognize the dynamics at play like in every day i understand okay Mm -hmm. so then let me ask you this though so how does systemic racism continue Mm -hmm. to persist in implicit and explicit ways well because i would say we have not taken the time to really uh break that contract (laughs) Um, so i'm doing a web series right now uh focused on my discipline which is public administration and in it i'm specifically using uh, the racial contract as a framework to ask ourselves, you know, how can we improve public service, whether it's government organizations, nonprofits, uh, social enterprise organizations, how can we improve those organizations so that 
they don't continue to uphold this contract. Um, and so you don't, you can't heal what's not heard. That's a saying that I heard from someone. Um, and it, I heard that and like, it just kind of changed my life. <laughs> and so what that means is that unless we call out things very specifically, which we have been doing for a long time, but you know, the powers that be quite often, like they just turn a, turn a deaf ear or turn a blind eye to it um, because racism works for certain people. That's it. And like racism is a system that works for non people of color. And so if you know that, then you probably don't have any interest in breaking it. Right. I mean, you have to have some kind of like moral compass or moral code that you operate by to say, you know what? Um, my social, political, economic gain is not more important than really fostering a sense of humanity and really fostering a sense of wholeness and equity. And so until that happens, right, then we aren't going to have leaders who really, really push for, you know, doing things differently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. No, that's deep. That's deep. So let me ask you this, though. So San Bernardino County uh, just declared racism a public health crisis. Yeah, now, how significant is that in the long scheme of things? So I would say that is hugely significant. Um, so if you look at the actual voting record, it was a five to zero record, uh, meaning that everybody on city council agreed that uh, this is a public health crisis. Um, and I remember uh, when I when I posted the news about that, one of my colleagues who is in public health, um, you know, that that was just shocking for him, you know, um, and another friend of mine who is a public health scholar um, let us know that there was this, it wasn't a petition, it was a letter by this, um, it was the California Pan-Ethnic Health Network, and they were circulating a letter to um, Governor Newsom um, to make sure that the whole entire state of California um, was it, it was declared in California to be a public health crisis. And so in that letter, you'll make reference to other cities and other states doing this as well. So you'll see that it's becoming more of a trend, um, just like at the local level. So like, you know, uh, county and city. But I would say this is hugely significant because what we're saying here is that you know, racism is not something from yesteryear. It's not something that we just study. It's not something that um, we just observe. It's something that is actual that is actually creating death, right? And death in many ways, not just physical, but you know, death economically, politically, socially, educationally. And so, when you have you know political leaders who actually say, "Look," You know, this is not just about policing and it's not just about, you know, just discrimination. This is about people's lives. You know, to have that kind of leadership is, is really, really important. And what I hope uh, that will do is that it will set a precedent um, to where we look at our structures, our processes and policies, which um, with a much more nuanced and complicated lens um, and not just do stuff just to do stuff, but we really try to change, you know, like how institutions have been operating for so long. Wow, well, that's deep. Mm -hmm. So what are some practical steps that can be taken to dismantle systemic racism? 
I am glad you asked that <laughs> because um, I actually, on a whim, um, I started this series. Um, it's on Instagram right now, my Instagram page, and it's called Put a Ring on It, uh, Not Treating Anti-Racism Like a Side Chick or a Mistress. And basically, um, it's steps, it's very practical steps for leaders to take into account, you know, how can we, how can they take this momentum that's been generated now um, over the past like month-ish, I would say, to uh, really um, you know, eradicate racism. How can they take that momentum and make it more meaningful? Because as a result of protests that we've seen, we've seen corporate leaders, you know, talk about how they have these renewed commitments and new commitments to diversity, equity, inclusion, commitments to being anti-racist, you know, commitments to donating money to a lot of causes, commitments to increase their hiring of people of color, and those things are great. But what's really important is to sustain this. So it's not enough just to throw money at something. Right. It's not enough just to say I'm going to do X, Y and Z, but now it's time to walk that talk. And sometimes I think what can happen is we get so caught up with the um, with the fervor that we forget about actually putting one foot in front of the other and asking ourselves every single day with every action you know, how can this action or what is this decision going to mean towards getting my organization to be an anti-racist organization? And so, um, you know, I I chose that title because we've seen time and time again how um, these these commitments or claims to commitments to equity and inclusion and diversity, um, you know, they're very, they're very surface level, right? Like it's hot for a minute and then you come back like five years later and that organization could still be in the same place, right? Um, And so if we really want change, you cannot treat this, you can't treat um, committing to anti-racism and practicing it in your leadership as just a task or a project, right? When we're in relationship with someone, when we're not, um, you know, treating somebody like a mistress or a side chick, when we are in commitment to one another, we stay put, we stay in it, hopefully, right? The idea is not to be with someone, you know, for a good time, but for a long time, right? And so that's the same kind of um, commitment that has to happen. And the other thing too, you know, like when you're with someone in a, in a really serious relationship, you are committed to the ups and the downs, you don't quit when it gets uncomfortable, right? You don't quit when that honeymoon period is over with. You are in covenant with them. You are saying, I will do what I have to do to make this work. And so that's why, you know, like I chose that title. But the other thing too is that, um, you know, put a ring on it, that's Beyonce, right? Clearly. <laughs> and so um, oftentimes, and this has been a critique is that, you know, people love Black culture, but they want the culture without the knowledge and recognition of the humanity and the pain. And so when we, you know, adopt these terms, right, when these when we kind of cultural, catchy cultural things are appropriated, they're appropriated like for the fun, right? They're appropriated and they're, they're used and they're saying like for, for a good time, but we have to get beyond that, right? There's a saying that, People love Black culture, but they don't love Black people, right? And so this is a call to action to say, if you love things like Put a Ring on It, you know, that song and all that, then love the people, you know, who who actually brought that to life, right? Love the people, you know, who who bring that forward. 
And so the series, you know, again, it's called Put a Ring on It. It's on my Instagram page. And, you know, one leadership tip, one of the latest, I think the next one that I'm going to be putting out, it says um, it's it's for, for leaders who are really committed to anti-racism. You know, don't assume that just because you are that everyone else in your organization is. Because especially if you're in a large organization, um, not everybody's going to be enthusiastic about this. Right. Not everyone is going to want to adopt policies and change their behaviors and look forward to a change in culture that's really going to drive home um, and hold people accountable for being anti-racist. And so for you as a leader, you might be all on board with that. But again, not everyone in your organization is going to be doing so. So you can't assume that just because you say it, it's going to get done. And so that means you have to make yourself accessible to people who are committed to this work, like at every single level, right? And so especially if you're in a larger organization where you have layers of leadership, so you have a C-suite, you have, you know, directors, you have managers. And so the layers of leadership go down pretty far. And at every single layer, there's an opportunity for your messaging to get lost, uh, to, to even like not even really get taken seriously. And so you have to make sure that those employees, no matter how far um, down the hierarchy that they are, that if they're committed to anti-racism like you are, that you make yourself accessible and available to them. Because again, you know, you have to keep the train going. You can't just, you know, um, call out direction. So. Mm -hmm. No, so true. So I wanted to share this quote by Angela Davis. It says, in a racist society, it is not enough to be non-racist. We must be anti-racist. So I wanted you to um, talk a little bit about the difference between being non-racist versus anti-racist. Yeah, so that's a really good question. And that's a very important distinction because I think sometimes people um, believe that even if they may not be saying something racist or even if they might, might not be doing something racist, then they're fine. They're all in the clear. Um, however, that's not the case. So to be actively anti-racist is you are actively, you are purposefully, you are intentionally pushing back against those things that keep racism going. So um, you know, like when you're silent, like that's a problem. That's why they, people say silence is violence, right? And so when you're being actively anti-racist, what you're doing is you're question you're not just questioning systems that exist, but you are you are making changes or you're trying to make changes to that system, right? So um, let's let's take voting, right? This is a voting year, for instance. So for you to be actively, you know, anti-racist means you are looking at the agendas of candidates and to see like what's their track record when it comes to you know policies um, that they have supported or introduced. Um, have, the, have those policies been racist or not, right? Um, look at what they're proposing to do. Um, look at you know, what their political rhetoric is when it comes to um, identity. And so to be actively um, you know, anti-racist is saying, I'm not only, um, I'm, I'm going to not only you know, choose a candidate who might be in line with my like kind of very personal beliefs on certain things, but I'm going to actively look to see who is practicing anti-racism and ensuring that um, equity is promoted and who is not. And for me, that's what, that's who I'm going to vote for basically. Um, and so you have to make some choices, right? Um, because, uh, and with, and that's just the example of voting, right? Another thing could be, you know, if you hear someone saying something that's racist, 
non-racism would be like, okay, I'm just going to kind of ignore that. Right. I'm not going to, I'm not going to agree with it, but I'm not going to like say anything, but being anti-racist means that you say to that person, look, what you just said is not cool. It's not okay. So again, it's about more so being active um, to push against racism as opposed to just kind of letting it sit there and exist. Mm -hmm. No, that's so important because it's, it's easy to just be passive and be like, I'm not against it. But if you don't do anything, that's, that doesn't mean much. You're not changing anything. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I think I really appreciate your explanation. I think that's a huge difference. Sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's say somebody is excited and ready to start their Mm -hmm. anti-racist journey. Like, Mm -hmm. where should they start? Uh, So number one, you definitely want to understand, um, and it depends on who you are, I would say. Um, So if you are, let's say, a white person, you know, who's kind of just now getting into this space, number one, understand what your privilege is in this space. It is one thing to only have to learn about racism. It's another thing to have to actually experience it. Um, And so understand what that means. Uh, definitely do not see this or view this as, you know, like self-improvement or, um, you know, uh, or a project, right? This is about pretty much, you know, being open to a paradigm shift and how you view the world and how you treat people and how you want to actively dismantle a system um, that has defined, you know, this country. And so that's number one. You always want to be in a space to check your privilege. You always want to not overstep your boundaries. Um, Some people have, some people are cool with the term ally. Some people are not. So I'm not going to really get into that. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, um, amplify people who have already been doing this work, right? Especially people of color who have been doing this work. Um, And, you know, don't, don't overstep them, number one, right? Um, you definitely have to be in the mode of learning and unlearning. And that might, what you have to unlearn, it actually might push, push some buttons with you, right? You have to elevate your active listening skills. You have to, um, it's, what's that saying? God gave us two ears and one mouth so we could uh, listen twice as much as we talk, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of, that's kind of, that's like the mind state that you have to be in. Because if you are not checking yourself internally, to seeing like, how am I activated? How am I navigating this, right? How am I, you know, consuming information? Who do I get my information from, right? Um, Then you can actually do more harm than good, right? And then as far as books, um, there's a ton out there now. Like there's a ton. I mean, you can't get on the internet and not find something um, related to this. Um, And that's another part of the approach that you have to take with this, especially I think if you are a white person and you haven't really done this work before, is that um, part of the work is doing the work. It's literally going out there and finding resources because resources have been out there for a long time. And that's one of the challenges. And I would say that's one of the um, frustrations, I would say, that um, people of color, Black folks have is that um, you know, what we're talking about now, what's getting amplified and elevated now is nothing new. This has been around for a long time. And so, and, and not just the inequity, but, but um, analysis and thoughts and perspectives and reports and information about the inequities, right? And, you know, things like the racial contract, that's been around for a long time. And so don't, depend on or assume that people of color are going to do this work for you, 
right? So you have to go out there and do it yourself. And again, Brother Google is amazing. Sister Google is amazing, okay? <laughs> they can take you places above and, and beyond, right? Um, but I will say this, um, you know, Ibrahim uh, X. Kendi has a great book on how to be anti-racist. So you can definitely, you know, check that, I would say. I will also give you another quick one. It's the, Charles, the Charleston syllabus um, that was created and curated after the tragic events in um, uh, South Carolina. Yeah, the, the church shooting. Uh, yeah, the church shooting that happened five years ago now, I believe. Um, and so that's another, you know, that's another great resource. So again, um, understand where you are you know, like mentally and emotionally and intellectually with all of this don't overstep don't overstep your boundaries right um be more intent on listening as opposed to speaking and definitely you know do the work the heavy lifting on your own um, i'm not saying like don't ask questions things like that but even just be careful about how you do it because you know, for people of color who have been, again, like writing about these things, analyzing these things, studying these things for a long time, for us, it's not just an intellectual exercise, right? Like we're talking about ourselves, like we're talking about our lives, we're digging more into and we're, we're getting more connected and understanding more about what's happening in our families, you know, like, so these are the realities for us. And so it takes a lot. It's such an, like, an emotional taxation to you know um to rehash these things and to to write this stuff out right and to and to talk about it intellectually and so you have to be careful about like how you engage um people who actually do this work and again like study it you know and all that for a reason yeah, definitely. definitely yeah so one thing that i saw a lot on social media is young allies they call themselves allies mm -hmm. that um are very active about mm -hmm. their anti-racist journey but mm -hmm. they struggle a lot with their family members right. because they don't understand mm -hmm. so what message would you have for this specific group um keep doing what you're doing you know again uh understand your position of privilege it is one thing to have to convince someone you know not to be racist but it's another thing to actually have to endure racism right um you know like and i, I mean this is what i'm gonna say is kind of graphic but i think that it can kind of crystallize my point you know um this struggle that you may have and like kind of begging people to to not be racist and begging your family members and really asking them to you know with all of your passion to to see beyond color and to um you know just just practice being anti-racist right that pales in comparison to uh you know like the accounts that i've read about black folks being lynched and like begging for their lives like mm -hmm. not to be lynched right Mm -hmm. by by a white mob mm -hmm. so i would say just keep things in perspective right um and keep doing what you're doing right i mean this is a marathon this is not a sprint mm -hmm. right, right. Mm -hmm. this is a marathon this is not a sprint and so um i've come to the conclusion because i do diversity equity inclusion work that you know what i'm not for everybody Right. Everyone is not going to to hear my message and and be on board with it. Right. Everyone's not going to listen to me and either like what I say or how I say it, how I look when I'm saying it or whatever. And that's fine. 
right? Because I'm not for everyone. And that can be tough when you're talking about family because that's your blood, right? But um, this is, and especially when you're younger, this is a crystallizing moment for your growth because now you're finding out that, yeah, you know what? Yeah, some of your toughest critics are going to be your own blood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's an opportunity for you to really grow up and for you to be your own cheerleader. And when I say cheerleader, I mean um, to keep going, essentially, right? To not get uh, discouraged to the point of inaction when you see family members who, who don't seem to get it, right? So mm-hmm. my message for you is to just maintain perspective between you know, trying to beg someone to uh, like not be racist or trying to have these conversations as opposed to actually experiencing racism. Right. right? Part of that um, is also just, mm-hmm. you know, the family members maybe just didn't need to deal with their own fragility because we know that that exists as well. There was mm-hmm. a great book written about that a few years ago. Uh, so I think it's just a matter of people really understanding like, okay, so this is what's going on with me and I need to do the work. And it's not always going to be taught to me. Like you said earlier, it's not, we're not expected to, to do the work for, for other people. They have to kind right. of be willing to take on that themselves. Yeah. They have to be willing to take on it themselves. And, you know, I think that in these times and, you know, this is what kind of feels different for me. Like I, one of my <laughs> colleagues, you know, told me the other day, um, you know, she, uh, she highlighted, that she was much older than me <laughs> and she's proceeded to tell me that she remembers, you know, like the democratic national convention and like the, the protests and, and the upheaval around that uh, back in the sixties. And, you know, she was around during these time frames, like these critical moments, like, like civil rights movement and things like that. And, you know, like we've seen things happen between then and even now, but even she was like, you know, something about this feels different. Like something about this feels different. And even though I wasn't around like in the 60s, you know, I've, I've, I've been around enough to kind of see these spurts. Right. And even, um, you know, the, there's a difference between these spurts and now. And I think one of the different things is, is that you have more people across the board who are really starting to see the light. And you have there's more potential for um, white people, I think, to to want to actually do better, to want to actually look at, you know, where we're living and say, this isn't right. Um, Because like, if you look back in the 60s with uh, Dr. King, right before he was assassinated, he didn't necessarily have a high approval rating. You know, like, I mean, we celebrate him today, but he was considered to be like a disruptor and not in a good way, you know, not, not by everybody. Right. And so, you know, like, I think that now, um, I mean, there are definitely still people today who are just hardline racist, you know, they may not ever change. Right. But I think my hope is that there are more people who are willing to change than who are not willing to change. Mm-hmm. And so for, for every you know, like one family member who is going to dig their heels in and double down um, on their racist ideology, I'm hopeful that there are like two other people or three other people who are saying, I want to do better. Exactly. And like mm-hmm. you said, you know, we're at a different uh, time right now than mm-hmm. anything I can remember as well. So it'll be interesting to see how much further uh, we can go with this because I really feel like this is critical. And yeah. I think you know, a lot of people are more 
tuned in to what's going on. So mm-hmm. again, you drop some not just uh gems, you drop bombs. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean nukes. And so I'm I'm excited. And so um, and a lot of the stuff you shared as far as like the readings and the materials, we'll make sure to include those in the okay. show notes so that way mm-hmm. people can definitely go check that out for themselves. But yeah, yeah definitely a much needed conversation. So I really love your insights and everything that you shared on that. So I wanted to kind of switch gears a little bit. Now mm-hmm. you're also involved with a, a spiritual uh, wellness platform called Halo Loop. Can you share yes. a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm so excited because Halo Loop is a brand new uh, tech spiritual wellness platform that has uh, life coaching, therapy, spiritual counseling, and other kinds of inspirational content all in one place, which is really different than what people are typically used to. Because typically, if you want to, you know, go to therapy, you find therapy, but then you have to go somewhere else to find counseling, gotta go somewhere else to do yoga, gotta go somewhere else to get coaching. But the beauty of Halo Loop is that we we help you to create this loop, essentially a community uh, that can support you, not just when you um, are in, in, in bad times, right? But, you know, for us, spiritual wellness is not just about intervention, but it's also preventative. And so even if you're not, you know, dealing with depression or anxiety or anything like that, like think of it as going to get a tune up or like a checkup on your car. Your car can be running perfectly fine, but every now and then you do want to go in just to make sure that everything is good. And, you know, we give you that opportunity for growth as well. And so um, we're having a deal right now where um, if you sign up, I think the last day might be July, mid-July around there, uh, you get 30 days free of this great service. And so we have an array of providers, you know, who are experienced, um, they are credentialed, and they will take you through individual appointments or group experiences where you and peers um, who are also, um, you know, going through some similar stuff or wanting to grow in similar ways as you are, uh, you guys go through it together. And we also give you your own loop advisor. And so this is a really special feature of Halo Loop because your loop advisor is another added layer. So we don't just leave you out there on your own to just choose stuff, but the loop advisor um, who is a trained social worker as well um, is able to really get to know you and to point you in the right direction, but they're also available for wellness chats too. And so, um, yeah, that's pretty much Halo Loop. Um, And we also have a YouTube channel and it's just called Halo Loop. You can find it on YouTube. And we have, gosh, like several videos now by some great um, meditation instructors and some just inspirational people. So we have meditations on there, um, different kinds of meditations too. Uh, Reiki is on there as well. There's someone who does cord cutting too. So yeah, I mean, we, we try to just keep you covered. And again, if you um, pursue it now, go to haloloop.com, then I think until... July, mid-July-ish, you can get 30 days free on us. Wow, that's that's powerful. I like that because it's like Mm -hmm. a comprehensive one-stop shop approach where you can literally come in there and get several needs met. So Mm -hmm. I don't think I've seen anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And we cover everything, everything. So uh, navigating depression, anxiety, um, understanding your spiritual beliefs and identity, dating, um, career advice, um, setting life goals. So it's, it's really diverse. So there's something there for everybody. Definitely. And I, I encourage everybody listening to definitely go check that out. Thank you. So, yeah. 
And now I want to also ask you about your own project that you're starting up called Sounding Board Solutions. Can you yeah. tell? Yeah, <laughs> yes, um, absolutely. So I've kind of done a soft launch, if you will, but um, I'm trying to do something a little bit bigger in the next couple of weeks. And so Sounding Board Solutions is just like my leap of faith um, to kind of take my own kind of natural talents and what I've been doing for the past several years and formalizing it into a consulting company. Um, so Sounding Board Solutions all of it is basically it is it's your strategic thought partner to help you grow scale and to make impact essentially and so right now i'm offering services surrounded i'm offering services related to chief of staff advising research and evaluation um and so for chief of staff i'm, I'm actually the chief of staff at halo loop um and so um for my services through sounding board what I do is that I help people um, to understand what their chief of staff needs actually are, um, how to secure and identify the right person. But even for people who are maybe at the beginning of their chief of staff career, um, I provide mentorship and some advice for how to really be the best chief of staff you can be um, and to you know elevate not only your professional career, but really contribute even more and more um, to the company that you're at. Because typically we think of chief of staff and immediately what comes to mind is a political office or a campaign. Um, but there are more and more companies now, private sector companies and startups who really see the value of a chief of staff. Um, and because that person can really help leaders in that company um, kind of help them to, I would say, make sure that the direction that they're going in is really one that is strategic, but also help them not forget about the details as well. Um, and so, yeah, that's um, that's the core function of what I do um, with Sounding Board Solutions for Chief of Staff. And then advisory services, um, that's a little bit less intense. Um, and so people just literally need a sounding board, right? Like I have this idea, I'm not sure if it's going to work. What should I be doing or thinking about? I'm that person, you know, so I kind of walk you through a kind of guided decision making process. And it's really, again, a lot having to do with personal growth, but um, a lot of it having to do with business and professional changes as well. So I'll give you an example um, of a client that I have now. And she's looking to do some uh, changes you know, in her organization and to promote better diversity, equity, inclusion. And so, you know, she, she comes to me, we talk, and I kind of coach her through some questions to consider uh, some alternative methods and approaches. And, you know, she, she's doing those things right now. And I find resources for her as well to support what she's doing and just to take a deeper dive into information and research. So, yeah. Wow. And yeah. just from the time that we've gotten to know you, uh, I would say that to anybody listening, Marlon <laughs> worth every penny. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Everybody. Everybody. Yes. Every Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. So, so Marla, um, where can someone find you online? So um, my Instagram handle is right there on the screen um, at It's Just Marla. And if you go there, you can you know, see what I've been talking about. I've been talking a lot about um, anti-racism. And you can also go to my profile link in my bio and you can find my LinkedIn profile. And if you go to my LinkedIn profile, that'll show you more uh, about like my body of work. Um, so papers that I've written that I published, um, you know, and, and other things as well. 
And so, yeah, um, and that's in the Instagram page is where you can also find the Put a Ring on, ring on It series. Um, I'm kind of organizing that, but so, so for right now, it's kind of distributed all throughout uh, my account. But I am working on just kind of consolidating it into one uh, page, a space, space that you can see. So, yeah. Okay. Wow. Powerful, powerful. Well, Marla, it's definitely truly been a pleasure. We're so glad to have had you on and sharing Thank everything you. about the show and continue success on everything that you're going to get ready to do going forward. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And thank you for reaching out to me. I, I love what you what you guys are doing. I love your energy. And hopefully I can be back on again. Yeah. <laughs> Next time in person, who knows? Absolutely. Because <laughs> we're right in each other's backyard. We might as well. So, exactly. exactly. <laughs> right. Thank you, Marla. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Thank you. Well, there you have it, folks. That's our show for today. Thanks again for tuning in. And as always, like it or not, Beard, Beard and Curls is the, the new His and Hers. hers.